IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be reviewing the latest album by indie phenom Claro. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Uh, enough about me. What's our intern up to these days? Because, I mean, I don't know what the deal is with this Lana Del Rey album and the St. Vincent album cycle has, uh, you know, slowed down. Like, whoa. I mean, have you been giving them anything lately? I don't know. Like, uh, did we hire an intern or did the, our intern quit? <laughs> I, I haven't uh, seen them around the uh, IndieCast offices lately. Yeah. Well, the good news, like, if you're out there, and I assume if you're our intern, you're listening to us. Uh, I got a completely new assignment. Like, I need our intern, like, 24-7 on the Bjork's incel son detail. Now, oh man, I, I think okay. we, I, okay, I think for our listeners' sake. Do people know like what you're talking about? Like, Because this is something that broke this week. Someone on Twitter was talking about this. Yeah. That, like, I, Bjork has a son who's a musician, and apparently he's an incel. So um, I, I think for our, the sake of our listeners, we need to just break down Bjork's incel son. Like These words put together are all – these are all familiar words, but when put together, it just seems like the sort of thing that might break your brain. But Yeah, this is like IndieCast Mad Libs here. <laughs> So, I think. Yeah. So one thing I saw is that first off, like you see a picture of this guy and it looks like Bjork is photoshopped, like doing the face swap app onto a dude. Um, name is Sindri, apparently. So uh, <laughs> Sindri? Like, how do you spell that? S-I-N-D-R-I. Is that like a, a, a traditional Icelandic name or was that something that Bjork just came up with in a dream and, and applied to your child? And hence, this is what we need the intern on. But yeah, exactly. So, Someone posted a picture and of this person, and it, like low key, kind of looks like the lead singer of the world's a beautiful place. And I'm no longer afraid to die, um, but oh, he, wow. apparently he writes like some very like Long Island emo type lyrics, like vengeful ones about like women and so forth. And he's maybe kind of a redditor. And okay, that enough was great. But then like I see something on Facebook about how. He's apologizing for making a claim that he's a better songwriter than Bjork. Oh, well, see, that's like an Oedipal <laughs> thing, isn't it? Because, well, I guess the Oedipal thing is you try to kill your father and yeah. not try to upstage your mother by writing better songs than her. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, because, like, does, does he have a record out or, like, can you hear I, I his think stuff he on does. YouTube? Um, and once again, it's like, there, there's a part of me that feels like if I, if I, if I prod more deeply into this situation, I'm just going to find out that this was all fake and I'm going to be really dispirited. But, um, apparently this guy does make music, um, and you can find it, I think under his own name. I believe the name of the album is okay to disconnect. Um, oh. And also another album that's actually called Bitter and Resentful. Ooh. Uh, okay. Yeah. So is, so is so is he writing about like women in his lyrics and like not being able to like have relationships with women? Is that where the incel okay. stuff comes from? Here it is. Um, oh yeah, released in 2016. Um, Bitter and Resentful is a lavish, indulgent shoegaze pop punk from Iceland's musical heir apparent. Bittersweet and literate, Sindri Eldon's solo albums, both grandiose and relaxed. Uh, like, low-key, this kind of sounds like something I'd listen to. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, this description, an Icelandic shoegaze pop-punk record called Bitter and Resentful, like, I'm kind of on board with this, at least, you know, just on paper. Yeah. Uh, and it's Bjork's kid, so, you know, there's a good musical lineage there. I mean, it, this, this is five. This is from okay. five years ago. How have we not heard of this? I don't know. Well, the thing is, and, like, you you made this observation um, earlier this week, and I hadn't noticed it, but there is this bumper crop right now of records by... The children of famous musicians. Yes, and it's it's like multiple generations. Yes, of of musicians. Uh, I recently did an interview with Jacob Dylan, of course, of the Wallflowers and one headlight fame. Mm -hmm. His dad is Bob Dylan. He's probably the most successful uh, rock star kid of all time. I mean, it, if you take into account who his dad is, 
and what you have to live up to. And then his own success. I mean, you know, the Wallflowers have had an up and down career, but like One Headlight has been streamed more times than any Bob Dylan song, I think, other than Like a Rolling Stone and uh, what was the other one? Some other like big uh, knocking on heaven's door. Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you, Axl like Rose. The, yeah, he he seems like the most. I can't think of another example of of a rock star kid who even approaches his level of success. The only one who would come close when you think about like the lineage and the success, like I mean Julian Lennon, or like Sean Lennon for a while, but I think he's kind of gone off the rails into like alt right type conspiracy theorizing i think maybe him and sindri hang out together but you're right it's like to be jacob dylan to like be that successful and that like level-headed i think there's no question that this is the most like successful musician's son of all time and um are we on like the precipice of a wallflowers reappreciation renaissance like well i feel like we've always been been there a bit with one headlight at least i remember seeing uh modern baseball when they toured with pup and jeff rosenstein oh yeah you know this is old school this would have been like guess 2016 yeah <laughs> and, they, and the modern baseball walked out to one headlight hey and and i don't know to what degree that was genuine or ironic although if you listen to uh jake ewald's band slaughter beach dog I could see him being a Wallflowers fan. There's like some roots rock DNA in that group, along with the usual kind of emo and punk stuff. So yeah, they're 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 like super legit Wallflowers fans. Like they're from the era where like the Wallflowers and basically anything like Tom Petty adjacent was infiltrating Philadelphia emo slash DIY. So they've oh, yeah. they've also covered um, you know the Killers very earnestly. There, so yeah, the Wallflowers. Kind of like I mean, they're they're being reappreciated. Goo Dolls, like this sort of like rootsy alt rock stuff from '96, formative stuff for a lot of these guys. So I appreciate that they're, you know, that look and Sixth Avenue Heartache, like an IndieCast Hall of Fame song. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that absolutely. that is that's bedrock for us. Um, you told me about Bono's kid. Yes, <laughs> he has a band. <laughs> I didn't know about this until you told me about it. And I guess this is a mixed blessing that I listened to this band. They're, what are they? They're called Inhaler. Inhaler. That's the name of the band. Now, um, you would think, like, just seeing from the band name, maybe they were, like, named after, like, that Foles song. Because, like, you know, Foles are still, like, pretty enormous in the UK. I had not heard of this band either um, until, like, I just saw someone interviewing them. Um, I guess friend of the pod, Corbin Rafe. And... Yeah, it's Bono's kid. Um, the band is called Inhaler, and what the 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 reason that I was like so immediately drawn to it is not because like oh I really need to know what Bono's kid's music sounds like. It's certainly not Icelandic shoegaze pop punk, but like <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'll listen to anything these days. And first off, like Inhaler, the name itself, and you look at the cover. This is like. 2001 bands that kind of sound like you two like it it makes me think of that band ours o-u-r-s um totally it it, it's kind of cringe this album like it the guy's voice it sounds like bono the music has a very kind of early u2-ish sound i think on the second song there's like um whatever that mallet instrument whether it's a xylophone or a glockenspiel like um from i will follow whatever that one is um and I don't like I, I I this one was interesting to me because like it contrasts with like Bjork's son like just ripping down every last bit of like the legacy his mother set up, and then you have like yeah I'm Bono's kid I think I'm gonna make an album that sounds like my dad my dad's pretty sick yeah I mean, by the way we should say his name is Elijah Houston that's we keep calling him Bono's kid we should probably say his real name but <laughs> Bono's kid um, is a much cooler name let's be real here uh, yeah you know your your 2001 rock comparison is on point like when i listened to this record it reminded me of a cd that i would have bought at best buy for 7.99 you know because it was like one of those like major label new rock bands that they're trying to break and like maybe you hear one song on the radio and you're like oh that sounds all right i'll take a i'll take a run on this disc <laughs> and then like 
20 years later, you're digging through a box and you find the CD and you're like, who the hell is this band? Like, why did I buy this? Like, that's what Inhaler is to me. Yeah, I would say definitely early U2 with like some Killers influence in there. And I have to say, as someone who likes that kind of stuff, that even when there's a band that's doing like a C-list version of it, (laughs) I respond, I I, I don't hate it. You know, it's sort of like eating... um, like a really cheap bad pizza it's like you're still eating pizza like i still like pizza even though i recognize this isn't the best example of it mm. so and his voice does sound a lot like bono too like it, it's a lot like bono i think my dream uh, job is to be a guy in the band with bono's kid uh, it, well yeah well i mean are those I, I assume that they're all rich kids yeah uh, yeah probably you know they're, they're probably like the sons of bankers you know, yeah, exactly. Or you know, record execs. Bon, bon, like Bono, uh, when he goes golfing in the south of France, you know, these are the guys that he takes with him, <laughs> his banker bros, and then their sons formed a band together. You know, one uh, like progeny of a famous person, like their music that I've enjoyed lately, I have to say, is like Willow Smith. Ah, she's come out like she's doing this. Uh, pop punk thing now mm-hmm. and she had that song with travis barker i think it's called transparent soul yes and i don't mind that song i actually think <laughs> it's kind of a good song I, maybe my expectations were low and uh, it managed to exceed them for that reason but that song again it kind of reminds me of like an aughts era like knockoff mainstream punk song but that still has like a pretty good hook to it and like good production so you end up liking it anyway i mean am i totally wrong to like not hate that song (laughs) no like the the thing about like pop punk like of this of this ilk that's coming out nowadays that like the people can actually sing um with and the production is actually good like the fact that uh willow smith is working with travis barker i think like we are just really headed to this singularity where like jack antonoff and travis barker work together and then <laughs> like it, it it's just like this this horizon well, point that is inevitable. Well, Jack Antonoff will maybe he'll produce the Blink-182 comeback LP. Oh. Like after Mark Hoppus <laughs> you know gets gets better because we know he's going to get better. Yeah. And they'll do like take off your pants and jacking off. Oh like, my that'll be god. The, name of the album. Holy shit. Like I I'm 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 willing <laughs> that into existence. Like we we our pa- like let's not underestimate our powers of like uh manifesting things like that in, in into the real world. But you know, like the thing about like Willow Smith, it's like it's 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 quite good at being popular pop punk. The thing that like makes me laugh is how people are like kind of getting mad that oh this rich kid is becoming this interloper in pop punk like as if as if pop punk of this sort has like any integrity to protect like you know like maybe there's like some like um you know drunken lacrosse bro in long island thinking that like their culture is being appropriated or something like that um and also let's just point out that like jada pinkett had like a new metal band back in like the 90s yeah that's right so Willow Smith's roots are every bit as legitimate as like that of Bono's kid, whose name I've just forgot because it's nowhere near as catchy as Bono's kid. Yeah, I mean, I think Willow (laughs) is definitely ahead of uh, Bono's kid. I mean, Willow had that hit. Whip uh, my hair. Whip my hair. So she already has like some like musical pedigree of her own. But um, I I believe Avril Lavigne is also on the Willow Smith record. Yeah. And it seems like Willow is maybe emulating what Avril did in the aughts where it was, again, it was equally pop and punk. Yeah. And uh, if you're going to get upset about it, it's like, well, people got upset about Avril Lavigne back in the day. And now look at all the people that she's influenced. I mean, there were so many, especially I'm sure young, you know, female punk fans at the time who saw Avril Lavigne and they were inspired by her. And, and I'm sure Willow, if she ends up having a career, she'll do the same, Uh, you know, because that's how people get it. You're you're not like an eight year old listening to crass or something. You know I mean? This is, this is the gateway. This is the, you need these kind of gateways. And again, I think that's a good song. That single that with Travis Barker, I think it was pretty good. I know like you want to talk too. this is like a much less famous example of this phenomenon we're talking about, like the Goon Sacks yes. record, which you and I disagree on, I think. It's called uh, it's called Mirror 2. Mm. And um, 
one of the people in this band is the son of Robert Forster from The Go-Betweens. Yes. Which, you know, obviously much less famous than Willow Smith or Bono <laughs> or Bob Dylan. But, you know, for indie rock people, uh, that's a name. And I think when you listen to The Goonsacks, you can hear a similar sensibility of very clever, catchy Australian pop rock. Yeah. Uh, and I like the record. I think it's a really charming record. I like this band. You're turned off by this band, though, a little, a little bit, right? A little bit. Like, I mean, uh, this uh, an indie cast uh, recommendation corner alumni. So when I would read this, when I read this, um, when I would read reviews of this, like, I would just, it would be, like, for the most part, like a laundry list of, like, cool college rock influences. You know, it's like go-betweens and all these other bands like c86 and uh maybe some shoegaze maybe some stereo lab and like i don't know if it's like a a symptom of age but like that like even though these are all bands i like it kind of turns me off to see bands that are working within the established canon so i have i've developed over the years something uh i like to call the deftones test and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, like our listeners, like, oh, like leaning into their podcast, like playing devices. Tell me more. Um, yeah, the Deftones test. Yeah. What is the Deftones test? So first and foremost, if a band likes the Deftones, I'm probably going to uh, Deftones. I've never Deftones aren't a thing. Um, if they if they like Deftones, I'm probably going to like them like that. <laughs> that That's part one. But, you know, when I think about like Deftones in relation to a band like this, um, I judge a new band these days about, particularly like a rock band, uh, whether they're bringing anything new to the canon or whether they're just working firmly within it. So, Def- And the reason it's the Deftones test is that if you look at Deftones' cover album, they are a really cool, tasteful band. Like their cover album from 2011 had a Shot Day cover like years before that was a cool thing for indie bands to do. Uh, Cocteau Twins, they had uh, The Smiths, The Cure, Japan, Duran Duran, uh, Leonard Skinnerd, like kind of doing that like Roots Rock sort of thing, and also Drive Like Jehu, Jawbox, but the reason they never came off as like just a record collector nerd band is that they put all this stuff, they brought in this new metal, like West Coast rap uh, th- stuff that was like so terribly uncool and that's what made this music kind of uh work for me um it's you know they're they're music fans but they're doing so i just can't take a band seriously if i don't believe they ever had an uncool phase like you were saying like bands being like eight years old into crass i hear i see bands like yeah when i was 13 i got into sonic youth and fugazi and liz fair if that if that's if that's your history i can't fuck with you ice age failed that test uh Goon Sacks. I like a couple songs, but I think they fail that test because I don't hear like any uncool stuff in here. The 1975 passed with flying colors. <laughs> oh man! Well, see, look, I on one hand, I, I totally am with you. I get annoyed when uh, when bands. It feels like their influences are overly curated. Mm-hmm. You know that that they're trying to sort of check all the boxes that they think that critics want to you know they want to see that in order to think that you're respectable as a band so i totally get that i will say however that i think deftones no longer qualify as uncool i would actually say that if a band says that they're into the deftones that actually is now an influence that would be cool to name check cooler than say referencing a bunch of flying nun bands that I, <laughs> like like the you know like the, like the flying nun label like from new zealand like all those great bands yeah. that like i would suspect that the goon Sacks is influenced by i don't think that that has the same cachet anymore with this generation of music critics i think it is you are more likely with like a 23 year old music writer to impress them if you said i like the deftones mm. or i like blink 182 <laughs> like it like that's become the new canon i think for like the young generation uh, music critics, um, and I know that because the guy from the 1975 is a Deftones fan. And yes. I think that guy is very aware of what is cool and what's right to influence. And by the way, we, we should mention Maddie Healy. Oh. Isn't his mom like a soap opera actor? Oh, or yeah. Something? So there's a little nepotism there, too. You could We could group him, I guess, in a way. I mean, like his parents aren't musicians, but he's obviously a very yeah. uh, successful example of someone who 
had I guess his parents aren't famous here, but they're famous. Yeah, in, in the England. UK. Also, we gotta like mention like the OG like coolest shaker. Uh, his mom, I think, was uh, ha- what 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 she was in like Saved by the Bell or something like that. Haley Mills. Oh, oh, oh that's uh, she's in the Parent Trap. Yeah, too. that's I, it. The original Parent <laughs> Trap. Um. So so I don't know if like I I, I like this test, but I actually feel like the Deftones have become like a pretty fashionable like if someone said Papa Roach then Ooh. you know that would be that's a different story like if because like the Deftones are definitely like the filet of <laughs> new metal you know like they're the cool band Papa Roach they're is ra- cube steak I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah so like if there's some Papa Roach fans out there uh, put that in your bio because you'll probably end up on the show. You'll probably end up in recommendation corner because we'll, like we'll we'll be in your corner, uh, the Papa Roach fans. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment here, and this is a letter from John in Northville, Michigan. Uh, do you want to read the letter this time? I always oh, read the letter. Wow, man! Like I, I I've grown up so. Should we make IndieCast history? Like, do you want to read it this yeah. time? Yeah, this is like the one song. It's like the Goo Goo Dolls album where, like, they let Robbie the bassist sing. Um, yeah, special, th- <laughs> like, um, but yeah, Josh from See, Northville, Michigan, by the way, extremely IndieCast uh, name and uh, location. So, yeah, absolutely. Jo- yeah. I like I like the specificity of Northville, Michigan. Yeah. I don't know if that's like a suburb of Detroit or if you're just like in the middle of Michigan somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but, Thanks for writing in, Josh. Very Sufjan B-side energy here. So Josh says, I was in college when iTunes was introduced already. This guy, you know, he's warming my heart. And nearly all my music listening has been via iTunes or Apple Music since then. Therefore, I'm in the unique position of knowing exactly how much I've listened to every song in my life since, dating back to around 2003. Um, And he lists 7-4 Shoreline by Broken Social Scene as the leader with 156 plays. So I know you guys came a bit before the bit came of age a bit before the digital age. And Steven, I know you're listening to weird 80s cassettes right now, so you probably don't yes. have an exact count of how much you listen to given songs. But do you think you have a grasp on which songs you've listened to the most in your life? And does that also correspond to your favorite songs? So th- um, that is our question. So let's re- yeah. let's continue to reverse this dynamic by having you answer the question first. Okay, well, I mean, this is uh, interesting to me on on multiple levels. I think uh, before I answer the question, and I'll I'll turn this back to you, the idea of being able to track your music listening like that uh, exact, you know, over the course of almost 20 years in the case of Josh here, um, it's something I can't relate to because I do even now, so listen to quite a bit of physical media. And when I think about songs that I've listened to a lot, I know I'm probably exaggerating when I say, yeah. like, oh, I've listened to the song a thousand times. It probably isn't a thousand times. I mean, like he said that his most listened to song was only 156 times, which doesn't seem like a lot. And but that's it, from two, that's a song from 2005. So, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it probably is. Like, you know, because when you have the exact number, you know, it, it prevents you from, again, being able to sort of exaggerate how much you like something. Um, I have to say, I'm kind of creeped out by the <laughs> idea of like my listening being tracked that closely. Uh, and maybe that's just because of my generation. I don't, I, but having like those kind of stats for my own listening, on one hand, it'd be, I, I'd be fascinated by it. But on the other hand, it's like, oh man, I don't know. That's like kind of crazy to me. I, I mean, do you have anything comparable to that? Like, do you, <laughs> like, do you have no, like specific numbers for yourself? Uh, so I did. Uh, I think Josh and I had very similar experiences, not just the fact that we listened to the broken social scene self titled album a shitload of times, but, um, uh, I did. I would be like kind of morbidly fascinated with the iTunes count. Now the problem is I had to kind of refurbish my account. Like I got a new computer and iTunes changed to music. And then for the most part, I went to Spotify, which doesn't track quite as accurately. But um, I've just really wondered, because like people will say, like I've listened to this album a thousand times or I've listened to it a hundred times, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot of like it's a lot if you actually think about it in the context of like every single song that you've listened to. So, for me, when I think what the question itself is like 
the song you've listened to the most in your life, does that also correspond to your favorite song? So I've thought about this more recently um, with my ability to listen to music much more limited to like most of the time, the car and the gym. The songs I'm going to listen to the most are the ones that have the most utility. In other words, the ones I can listen to while I'm running. So last year, I guarantee you Kawasaki Backflip by Dogleg was by far the song I listened to the most. Mostly because like it's great, it's it's a fucking amazing song, and secondly, it's a song I like to run to, and I run every day, and because if I think if if I were somehow able to 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 make a list of the songs I've listened to the most, it would like I think it would bring up some like really um, <laughs> I would have to like really face like what my life has been because like. I've definitely listened to The Offspring's All I Want more than anything on OK Computer or Stankonia or Loveless because it's a short song that's super fast. And when my running starts to lag, I just put that on. Oh, man. that What year is that song from? Um, 1996 or 1997. So uh, is that on Ixnay on the Ombre? It is definitely then? on Ixnay on the Ombre. <laughs> Uh, yeah, their 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 lesser beloved um, uh, follow up album, The Smash, which has their uh, power ballad "Gone Away" on it. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, thing. exactly. So I'm gonna listen to that song when I get <laughs> off this podcast. Yeah, um, I was gonna, you know, I would say, and again, this number I'm sure is inflated because I, you know, I listened to this album first on cassette mm. in 1991, but it would, it would probably be something off of Octune Baby ah. would be like my all time listen just because I listened to that a million times when I was in middle school and I didn't have many tapes then. So it was just, um, you know, it was something I listened to like walking home from school every day. <laughs> uh, so that'd be historic. Uh, but similar to you, like if we're, if we're, if it's more recent and it's during like the streaming era, you know, you talk about music that you listen to while you're running. Like I have certain playlists that I listen to when I'm writing mm. because for writing music, it has to be music that I enjoy, but I can also push into the background. Like if it's something new, I can't really write at the same time huh. because it's, it, it, I'm distracted by it. I'm, I'm, I want to listen to it rather than focus on my writing. So there's a there's a Kurt Vile playlist that I have that I usually put on when I'm writing because it's pretty chilled out. Mm. It's music I like, but I can also ignore it if I need to. So it would probably be like Pretty Pimpin' or something. It would probably <laughs> be like my modern standard. You know, like that's a song I probably hear a couple of times at least per week just because I put that on when I'm writing. So... Yeah, you have your running playlist. I have my writing playlist. It's it's a very sedentary versus active uh, dichotomy between the two of us. Yeah, if I were able to listen to music while I was writing, man, like this would be way different. But I can't listen to anything when I'm writing. Yeah, that's interesting because I love to listen to music when I'm writing, but it has to be music that I'm familiar with. Like another all-time writing music artist for me is Air. Oh I have yeah, an Air playlist. And their music is pretty cinematic, so it puts me into a good frame of mind when I'm trying to be creative. But again, it's something that I can also ignore when I need to get into the into the depths, into the trenches of writing something. <laughs> By the way, you say 1991 cassette, and I was really hoping you would say like "Ugly Kid Joe," America's Least Wanted. Like for, oh, man. for whatever reason, when you say cassette, it can't be a good album. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I. That came out in '92, I oh. believe, and, I, and my friend had that on. <laughs> my friend did have that on CD, so I, I and because I think I'm trying to remember if their cover of "Cats in the Cradle" is on that album or if that was on a subsequent album. Uh, but that's a hilarious. Yeah, the EP was ugly hit. as they want to be. America's least one is the hit cassette with "Neighbor" and their "Cats in the Cradle" cover. Uh, okay, all right, man. <laughs> We're both dropping some good offspring and uh, Ugly Kid Joe knowledge in this episode. Um, well, let's change course here no. to something much newer and hipper. Fine. Uh, talk about the new album by Claro. It's called Sling. Just to give a little bit more background on Claro, she is uh, also known as Claire Cottrell. Mm. She is an Atlanta native. She's 22 years old. Um, and she's been uh, in the public eye for about four years now. Her first big hit was a song called Pretty Girl mm -hmm. that she recorded at home and she just posted it 
online uh, on a whim, and it ended up becoming a big viral hit. It has since been streamed. I looked at Spotify this morning, 243 million times. It's probably more than any Bob Dylan song, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. More than one headlight uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, and if you go on Spotify, and I'm sure this is also true on YouTube and any other streaming platform, I mean, she has several songs that are over the 200 million mm-hmm. stream mark and, 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 and many over the 100 million stream mark. So she's definitely one of the more popular like young singer-songwriters working today. She put out her full-length uh, debut album, Immunity, in uh, 2019. And uh, her latest record, Sling, uh, comes out today. And this is sure to be... Uh, I would think at least uh, this summer, like maybe like one of the bigger indie albums of of the season. I'm curious, like, what do you think of this record? So, so I think it was it's appropriate that we talk about this album in the context of like the greater question about like uh, you know parents and uh, privilege and so forth, because as you know, Clara rose to fame. There was a lot of backlash about like, oh. This person's an industry plant. They have rich parents, which is sort of kind of true. But also, I don't think you can like fake getting 243 million plays on Spotify. Yeah. Just to give some background, her her father is a guy named Jeff Cottrell, who is not a famous person, but he is a well-known marketing guru. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's good friends with the head of uh, Fader, the record label, and Fader subsequently signed Claro. Yeah. So that was the, I guess, the hubbub out there that people thought that she benefited from uh, her parental connections, which <laughs> she certainly did. Yeah. But like you said, she also wrote many songs that connected on a wide level, and you can't really manufacture that. So it's like both things are true at the same time, mm-hmm. really. She is privileged, but she also delivered the goods. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about like Clara specifically, like she... I've read interviews with her where she talked about like she was going to Syracuse University at the time. And it's like, uh, you know, most rich kids I knew who went to Syracuse would go into like finance or law or something like that. So not necessarily the worst thing in the world for this like person to uh, go ahead and, you know, make songs like Flamin' Hot Cheetos and uh, Pretty Girl and so forth. Like there's the connection is super real. And I think what's interesting to me thus far is with this record, how you brought up how it's going to be. Uh, one of the bigger ones of the summer. And in a way, I think that this record has gone very much out of its way to kind of deflate its own hype. Like, I know this is like kind of super nerd inside baseball stuff, but like there is not a single review published as of the recording of this episode, which is, I mean, no matter how hard of an embargo you typically get on a, a big record, there's usually something written about it, unless it's like a surprise drop. So there's that component. Yeah, I know the embargo is that you're not allowed to have a review until like, yeah. the release day. So like with so like when this pod goes up, it'll go up in the midst, I'm sure, of a garden of yes. Claro reviews. Uh so yeah, it'll be curious to see how people respond because I agree with you, you know, beyond the review thing, musically, this is a very low-key record. And I mean, immunity. It's not like it's this you know aggressively extroverted record, but like this album, um, like there's barely any drums on it. It's a very muted record. There's a lot of like acoustic ballads and piano ballads. Um, at times, it actually reminds me um, of Way's Blood. I don't know if you got that vibe from this record. It has sort of like a classic '60s yeah. and '70s pop sound, which <laughs> we should mention that this is. Another record produced by Jack Antonoff, uh, who, like, he needs to take a vacation. I mean, this guy, I feel like, is Phoebe Bridgers, like, the last, like, oh, major God. Let's not. singer-songwriter of, like, this generation who hasn't worked with him? Uh, we need to respect our power and not try to act. I mean, maybe it'll happen anyway. I just wonder if he's, like, like Timbaland, like, had, like, kind of associate Timbalands who was kind of doing most of his beats, like... I do wonder if, like, Jack Antonoff is, like, doing all this stuff that he says. Or maybe he just... I mean, there's a new Bleachers album coming out, too, so... Well, this album... I wouldn't say that this album reminds me of, like, other records that he's worked on. Again, like, you... I I wouldn't know necessarily that he worked on it if I hadn't read 
the Rolling Stone profile where mm. he talks about working on the record and he's quoted a bunch. Um, but uh, again, speaking to your point about this being a low key record, I mean, I, I read the Rolling Stone profile uh, that came out, I guess, last week, and it does seem like she's struggled a little bit with the sudden fame that she's gotten mm-hmm. and all the touring that she did. And this does feel like a reaction to fame type record. We should mention it's the cover of Rolling Stone. Yes, exactly. Which again speaks to how popular she is. And uh, the lead single, Blouse, mm-hmm. um, which again is this very kind of low-key acoustic ballad, almost like a whisper type song. Yeah. Uh, that she performed it on Jimmy Fallon. Um, that's very representative of the sound of the record. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's only like a couple songs that are kind of upbeat and really like what, some of my favorite songs on the record are more in the upbeat camp, like Amoeba, which is the second track on the record. Yeah. It has like a really cool kind of clavinet riff <laughs> on it. Oh yeah. Uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but for the most part, this is like a pretty downbeat record. Yeah. And I think another part of what 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 stood out to me as far as like her approach to this record is that there's only been one single and it was Blouse. That's it. And you know, um, like that, and that just kind of is indicative of even of the fact that you know this, she's on the cover of Rolling Stone, and this song has gotten like four million plays thus far. Um, and I'm I'm a little surprised that uh, she did this song on live TV because I mean. Look, the fact is, like, the early shows were rough. She'll allude to that. But this seems like a record that I would almost think would make more sense in 2020, where I've heard from a lot of bands that, like, they're like, oh, cool, we don't have to tour or, like, be out on tour. That takes off the pressure of, like, having to make a record where we think about, like, how it might come off live. And, you know, especially, like, I don't know if she would bring a clavinet player, you know, to on tour just have someone do like a keyboard thing like that but um i don't know like i i I appreciate kind of how like low key it is um and how it kind of gets more in this 60s 70s kind of singer songwriter quasi laurel canyon vibe um i think what um I, i think what the real test is going to be is that so much of what made Immunity work. Um, and by the way, like Immunity is a record that really, really grew on me. Like at the beginning. Yeah, me too. Me yeah, too. It, it, it made me think of, like when I, when I heard songs like North or Alewife or it, uh, something about it just put me in the same space of like being 20 years old and listening to Death Cab for Cutie. I think that they'll, or like stuff on Saddle Creek. It's like very popular, but also kind of like low key song about being 18 or 19 and thinking your relationship is like the biggest thing in the world, which is great. Music there, that music like that needs to exist. I think now it's like, I wonder if there's like a bit more self-consciousness in the lyrics or um, kind of a more inward look about like what it means not to, not so much to be like an 18 or 19 year old in college or on the internet, but like to be, a early 20-something person who's famous in music. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I really liked about Immunity was how she was able to integrate lots of different types of music and internet culture. You know, yes. There was a little bit of indie rock, a little bit of emo, as you said. There was like an R&B influence. There was obviously... Yeah, Rust, the, um, uh, the production that he did on that album. Yeah, and... It, it it all came together re- really seamlessly and and again like that record was was fairly low key too i think that's mm-hmm. just how how claro is but i do feel like that album in comparison to this new album sling was more dynamic mm-hmm. and if i have a criticism of sling it does feel a little one dimensional at times mm-hmm. and and i know like when i'm listening to it i wish that there were again a few more upbeat songs just to sort of shake up the sound of the record, which again, I think is very kind of slow downbeat introspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a mood record and, yeah. and I, and I appreciate that. And, I, and I'm with you with, you know, with appreciating the idea of making a record like this after she has the big, you know, streaming hit that mm-hmm. this doesn't seem like a record where, she seems especially concerned with like topping what she's done before. <laughs> there's not like a ton of guest stars on the record. Yeah. It's not, there's not like 
an abundance of tracks, you know, like where you're just trying to goose the streaming numbers by having like 18 songs. I think there's only, uh, I think there's 10 songs total on yeah. the record. And it definitely feels like the work of an artist who is maybe just getting into like a lot of those classic 70s songwriters. Like she's talked about Judy Sill mm. and, and Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. artists like that. I think uh, she named her dog Joni, and there's like a mm. instrumental track on the record called Joni. It's not spelled the same way as Joni Mitchell, but it's inspired <laughs> by Joni Mitchell. Yeah. So she's, you know, and so she's like a lot of 22 year olds, like where you, you get into an artist and like that's all you want to listen to for, mm-hmm. you know, an extended period of time. And this might just be the phase that she's in with this. I do hope that she gets back to maybe integrating some of the other influences that she seemed to have before. Because again, I just think that makes her a little more interesting musically, even though, I mean, the reference points that she has here are stuff that I'm into. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, you mentioned how Blouse has 4 million streams already, yeah. which is like fantastic for most indie artists. But is that a disappointment for someone like her? Oh, I mean, God. I, is that a sign that this record is maybe not going to be as popular as Community was? <laughs> I, I, I've i honestly just come to accept that I have absolutely no idea what any metrics mean anymore. I think we are definitely in like a, a post-everything kind of music scene, like music scene where like the reviews, I don't know if they matter, the streaming numbers, I don't know what's real. Um, but I'll, but with, with, with that, like... This record just stands out to me, especially in comparison to a lot of like follow-up records from you know artists who occupy a, a not definitely not as high of a space as far as popularity. But like, you listen to like the Lucy Dacus record, Japanese Breakfast record uh, from this past year, and there just seems to be with those like a very conscientious leveling up. Whereas this one kind of goes in the opposite direction because like those ones maybe they're trying to reach the level of a Claro as far as popularity, but like. This one's turning a bit more inward in a way that I think is either going to be indicative of someone who's in it for like a long haul, like maybe the next record will uh, be a bit more extroverted, or maybe this is just one that people need to get out of their system, like the muted sophomore album. Uh, you know, I don't want to bring up like in utero because like they're extremely different as far as, um, you know, as far as like tone or maybe like the second, the XX record. Um, which was very much more like muted compared to the first one before they be- made like a dance record third time around. But when you mentioned that, like the influences behind the record, Judy Sill, Joni Mitchell, Immunity definitely passed the Deftones test. <laughs> like it, to kind of bring it full circle, like this one, I still think there's like a pers- a force of personality to it that will allow me to get deeper into it and like give it more of a chance to. Uh, settle and percolate uh, than a similar album. But you know what? When you listen I, at work, whenever people play like the chill indie playlist, like that's what oftentimes people play as background music at work. It's like chill indie, feel good. It's like all these bands and artists that I've never heard of who somehow generate 2 million play, 2 million plays on Spotify. So much of it in 2021 sounds like immunity. So as you think that they they might have just kind of wanted to shy away from that and just establish their own lane, um, and you know what? Like even if I don't love this album just yet, I definitely respect it. Well, and you, you mentioned like the muted sophomore album. Like another record that I thought of when I was listening uh, to Sling was Punisher, the Phoebe huh. Bridgers record. Which I think, if you compare that to Stranger in the Alps, I think Punisher is in many ways a much quieter record Hmm. and a more introspective record there's not a lot of bangers on that album uh it is more i think about uh like the quiet of the record and 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 the observations in the lyrics Mm -hmm. and of course i mean that record ended up being a huge hit for (laughs) it did pretty well (laughs) and i think you know maybe claro is onto something by not just aping the sound of her first record maybe this record is a sign of like, well, this is what is coming next. Like mm. these kind of quieter records are what are what people are looking for. I will say with Claro as a lyricist, for me, she's not quite there yet. Like I don't, I obviously, and I say that knowing that there's this 
huge fan base out there that has connected with her songs and really relate to what she writes about. She writes a lot about anxiety, depression, living with those uh, with those issues. And I mean, there's you know scores of Instagram accounts you know that are just devoted mm-hmm. to like posting her lyrics and diving into her lyrics and obsessing over Claro. I'll just say like for me, I just feel like she definitely has a point of view, but I I, I just feel like in terms of just having lyrics that are quotable that that stand out or that tell a story um if you're looking at her in comparison to some of her peers i i i feel like that's not quite her strength i will say like musically i think she's really good with melody mm. like and and her songs i think are often very immediate even in this format where uh she's not writing songs i think that are as immediate as the songs on immunity or some of the big hits. I mean, you mentioned flaming hot Cheetos, hmm. which is you, you see the title of that song. And you're like, what the hell is this song going to be? But that that's sort of like a really great pop song. Yeah. I mean, it just works really well. Um, and I don't know if there's anything on this record that like hits quite as strongly as that, but you know, as you said before, like immunity was an album that like you said that you warmed up to it over time. And that was true for me too. Mm-hmm. I think Claro is just that kind of artist that because it's so low key, you can judge it uh, at face value in the moment, like the first time you hear it. But then, like six months later, mm. it hits differently. I think she's kind of just like a slow burn, yeah, type artist. So I do expect that this record will, will probably have the same kind of arc. I mean, because mm-hmm. it, it seems like she's that kind of artist. Oh yeah, and also the uh, we have to take into account the fact that like we are people who enjoyed Immunity. Um, and when I bring up like Death Cab and like, you know, Saddle Creek artists, how they, you know, what they meant to me, like there are people who are 20, 22, like kind of living alongside Clara who like immunity meant everything in the world to them. So these are the people whose, you know, reaction I'm very interested in as far as like how this record hits. Like, um, you know, you, I mean, you grow up loving a band and it's like, you're going to give their, uh, album a lot more time than something that you see. Uh, oh, that like, you know, a couple of 40-year-old people are talking about, maybe I need to look at that album, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it definitely seems like the kind of record that draws you in because it's so quiet, you know? And that's an yeah. old performance trick where you actually lean out from people and that makes them lean forward. And mm-hmm. it seems like she's made like a like an audience lean forward type record with Sling. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to spending more time with this record and, and really absorbing it and... Uh, but yeah, I mean, Claro, uh, she's doing her thing. And again, I think we both appreciate that she didn't do the obvious follow-up yeah. record. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where, where Ian and I recommend something that we're into this week. Uh, Ian, why don't you go first? So today, or Thursday, it was a huge day for uh, surprise EP releases. I know <laughs> Steve will talk about one that was very important to us, but uh, Eve's Tumor dropped uh, an EP surprise release called The Asymptotical World. Asymptotical. Asymptotical. I just like saying that word. Um, so they're following up um, a song called Jackie that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, which this album definitely passes the Deftones test for me, largely because it kind of sounds like Deftones or there's like a hint of kind of industrial trashy pop like Orgy and Stabbing Westward. And I mean, and Tricky, and I mean that in like the most positive way. But, you know, the last album, you know, as much acclaim as it got Heaven to a Tortured Mind as being this like kind of, you know, new rock star sort of ideal. Um, this one to me, like, I think it's maybe my favorite thing that Eve's Tumor has released because it leans as hard as possible into the kind of trashy alt rock, new metal industrial sound that I think was a little more missing on Heaven to a Tortured Mind aside from uh, Gospel for a New Century. Um, I, th- I can't wait to spend more time with this one. Um, de- definitely, uh, putting together a catalog that stands up to just about anything in the past five years, like e- anything this artist will do is interesting to me. And please, like if we're, if we're in the, if we're in the interest of trying to manifest things into the world, Eve's tumor, please cover stitches by orgy. I think you'll kill it. Yeah. And you know, not to keep, uh, picking on this record, but like when people talked about 
the St. Vincent record, Daddy's Home, and oh, yeah. the sort of sleazy funk rock aesthetic that I was going for, I kept thinking about East Two, East Two More, you know, and like the, the their last record, and I just feel like just listen to that record, like they nailed it, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think if you listen to those albums side by side, I mean, I just feel like the East Two More is like clearly the preferable choice. That is the Pepsi choice uh, <laughs> to go with them. So yeah. Strong choice there. Strong recommendation from Ian. Um, as uh, Ian said, there's been a lot of surprise EPs uh, dropping this week, and I have to give a shout out to Total Serene, the new release by Gang of Youth. Oh yeah, one of the big indie cast artists. Um, and this is a three song EP. One of the songs has already been released. Uh, it was the recent single "Angel of Eighth Avenue," which is like uber Gang of Youth. Yeah, all of their sonic hallmarks are on that song. But their other songs are actually pretty interesting departures. There's a there's a cover of an elbow song called "Asleep in the Back," which <laughs> means a lot to Ian. This is like your favorite elbow song, right? Yeah, like I I I was listening to this and like I wasn't looking at the screen or my phone when it was playing. And I'm like, this sounds like an elbow cover. Like, uh, and it's like, holy shit! It, it, it's not just a cover of an elbow song, but like quite possibly my favorite elbow song and like an elbow song. That appeared, I think, on the American version of Asleep in the Back. I think the British version didn't have the title track. Um, there, it's it's just like one of those things where you like have to ask yourself, like, did I imagine this? Did I somehow like? Because I interviewed Dave pretty extensively in Step for Stereo Gun back in 2018. It's like, was there some seed planted where they're like, yeah, man. Like not that they need my help anymore, but they're just on the uh, it, we're just on the wavelength, man. Yeah, Same like wavelength. some people are just on that wavelength with us. Yep. So that's where he is. And then the last track is really interesting. It's it's a song called Unison, mm-hmm. and it starts out as a familiar sounding Gang of You song, but then it takes a turn in the second half where it becomes much more electronic, and there's this uh, integration of uh, samples from indigenous Pacific music. And uh, I'm just going to say, I don't want to go too in-depth in this, but like, I might have heard some music from the upcoming Gang Abuse album. Oh. And I feel like this song is a Lex. pretty good preview of like what's coming next with this band. I, I think they're really looking to make a different kind of record, uh, but at the same time, delivering the same sort of emotional catharsis that you want from that band. Uh, so if you love Gang Abuse... Definitely check out that EP and pay close attention to Unison because, again, I think that's a good sneak preview of uh, what's coming up ahead with this band. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting. It made me think of uh, Octung Baby and like that era of U2. Like I that... think, I think, I, I would say Dave is on the same wavelength as you are once <laughs> again with that comparison. So, yeah, it, it, it should be good stuff. Uh, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.